Well, good morning. It's good to be here on a summer day, enjoying Christ with you all. Glad to see you. We are going to be in James 4. Grab a Bible, grab your phone, look it up. You can even cheat off the person next to you if you want, but we want you in the Bible because this is a biblical sermon. As you're turning, I'm going to do the opposite of most sermons. I'm going to give you an invitation at the front, uh, thinking on the fact that we just had youth camp last week, and we have another youth camp here where we serve the city this week. Uh, I know that some of you have been visiting the church or you're new members, and you have teenagers. Here is your invitation to allow them to be involved with what the youth of our church do. Our youth group might be a little different than what you've seen in the past, we're not actually trying to pull the youth away from families. We're trying to support you and your family leadership. And we gather the youth together uh, before this service at 9 o'clock, and they have a little time of Bible study where they talk about the Scriptures and they learn how to serve one another, and they encourage each other peer-to-peer. We think that's important. So we'd love for your youth to come join us in that. Afterwards, you, of course, can uh, sit with them in a the service. If that's your thing, that's cool. We support that. But we uh, love to have our youth together uh, doing peer-on-peer interaction in the Spirit. So you're invited to that. What I want to do now is read the text today from James 4 and then pray for our time together. <clears throat> We're going to pick up in James 4.11, reading the Word of God through verse 17. Thus saith the Word of God, James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you Simply open up your word to us by your spirit this morning. We have gathered, we've gathered to worship you in Christ. And we need the text to be illuminated and for your spirit to apply it to our lives so that we can leave here victoriously conquering our sin in Jesus and overcoming the world, living life abundantly in Christ. So I pray for that now as we study the word together. Simple request, draw us into yourself through this time. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Brexit, big news, right? Not breakfast, but Brexit. Britain's exit from the European Union this week. Big deal if you're into that kind of stuff. It seems like there's always been throughout history uh, political problems in England. In fact, there's an interesting story. How many of you guys cut your teeth on the King James Version of the Bible. Anybody start with that? Maybe you still use it now. It's a great version. That's cool. Did you know it almost didn't happen? Uh, It was uh, commissioned in 1604 by King James I. Uh, What had happened is there had been some perceived problems with the older translation in England. So what we wanted was a uh, better translation. So 
he decided, let's get a committee together at the Hampton Court and let's make a better translation with all the scholars who could read the original language. They worked on it and finished it in 1611. But along the way, the whole government almost crumbled. What happened was when James I came into power and he took the throne, uh, there was a big division between Protestants and Catholics in England, and all the Catholics thought, hey, we got James I. He's going to be on our team. He's going to support us. They were wrong. He did the opposite. He began to kick out all of the Catholic priests. So the Catholics in the country said, we can't have this. We're going to take him down. And they decided not just to take him down, but to take down all of the government. So what they did is plan uh, on November 5th, 1605, about a year after he'd started this translation, they rented a house beside the House of Parliament. So there's a house for rent. And some of the Catholic leaders uh, rented the house right beside what would be our uh, congressional hall where Congress would meet. And they got 38 barrels of gunpowder and they smuggled them under the parliament into the cellar next door so that when the House of Lords showed up to support King James, he was going to give a speech, they were going to do their government on November 5th, the, uh, the arsonist of them, the guy with the musician, munitions exper- uh, experience, Guy Fox was his name, he was going to go down in the cellar light up all the gunpowder, and the whole thing was going to blow up the king and all the government, and then they were going to set the king's daughter up as a pro-Catholic queen to rule. Thankfully, what happened, when the big day came, they had all the gunpowder in place, they had the fuses, they were ready to go, and a uh, guard happened to wander down to the cellar for a different purpose, and he saw Guy Fox down there, you know, trying to light this thing, and they grabbed him. They put him in the Tower of London. They actually tortured him, and he gave up all of his conspirators. And it's a big deal that the king was saved, but also the translation project was saved. I want a picture there of how the hearts of men are always, they seem to be scheming to take over a throne, right? If there's a throne, then it's up for grabs, whether it's Africa or China or England. Uh, all thrones are fair game when it comes to people because people love their self-sufficiency. They love their self-sovereignty. And this, of course, is the theme that the Bible picks up on. Uh, in the beginning, Adam is seen as the first in a long line of traitors against his creator, God. And James, in this morning's text, is going to highlight the fact that you too are tempted to usurp Christ from his spiritual throne. That's where James is going to go here. I wish, in a way, this was more warm, fuzzy text, right? It was all about uh, rejoicing in God, but that's not where James chose to go. He's trying to prick your heart and say, look, I know what's going on inside of you, and he's trying to push us towards confession, repentance, and true fellowship of Jesus. So as we look at this text today, what I want you to see, and even though you you might not think of yourself as consciously Um, trying to be the king of your universe, right? But James is going to point out uh, two common ploys that you use to usurp Christ from his throne. So two common ploys you you use to make a grab for the crown of Christ. Um, Let's jump right in here and see the first one. I get this from chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Read with me again the first part of verse 11, where James talks about how we attempt to take God's place as judge. We attempt to take God's place as judge. In verse 11 he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. If James were a song, this might be the course. Throughout the book, 
He keeps saying, your words matter to God. Your words matter to God, though the tongue has no bones. It's strong enough to take down the whole church. Our words matter to God. So once again, we're exhorted here. We're called to speak only good of our brothers in Christ. Only speak things that will build them up. Not to talk bad about one another. And James actually makes the connection in this verse between a slander or gossip and actually judging someone. They go hand in hand, according to James, because he says in the last part of verse 11, the one who speaks against the brother um, it, or judges a brother. See how they're parallel concepts for James. Speaking against the brother and judging them uh, go hand in hand. Now it's important when you read James to know that here, when he's talking about judging, he's talking about a bad type of judging. We do see in Scripture a place for discernment, a good type of judging, if you would. For instance, when Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, remember with the situation there, he goes and visits and hears about what's going on at Corinth there, and he finds out that there's actually a man who's immoral sleeping with his stepmother, right? And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, we can't have that. And so he should be removed from the church. That's a good type of judging. Jesus said, Matthew 18, somebody sins against you, you just need to go to him and work it out. You need to talk through that. That's a good kind of discernment, good kind of judging. Uh, the type of judging that he is speaking about here in Jane comes more from jealousy or evil motivations of the heart. In fact, most of the New Testament, when it talks about judging, links it with the sin of hypocrisy. Right? When you hear about judging in the Scriptures, you might think about hypocrisy. Uh, famously, Matthew 7.1, Jesus said, Judge not that you should not be judged. And then he went on to say, if you're going to talk to somebody about sin or something, make sure you take the plank, the lumber out of your own eye before you take the sawdust out of someone else's eye. And Paul chimed in. Romans 2.1, Paul said, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, actually practice the very same thing. So Paul and Jesus both connected judging with hypocrisy. But James goes a different route here. I want you to notice that that's not what he's zeroing in here in our text today. Look at what he says. He says, if you judge, you speak evil against the law, and you're judging the law. That's what James is concerned about. You're speaking evil against the law and judging the law. Well, what law is he talking about here? Well, it could be the law of Moses giving to Israel in the Old Testament, but most likely from what he said earlier in the book, he's talking about what we call the love and the law of Christ, the law of Christ. James says, you're judging the law of Christ. What does that mean, the law of Christ? What's well, a phrase and a concept that we get from the New Testament? It's apparent in Paul. You might remember in Galatians 6.2 where Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Think of it as a law of love. What happens in the gospel is when God saves you, the Spirit of Christ comes inside of you and empowers you to love other people. And not just love other people, but love other people in such a supernatural way that it glorifies Christ himself. That's what he means by the law of Christ. So maybe driving over to someone's house and sitting, them, sitting with them when their grandparents die. right? Or babysitting for free for a couple who just needs a date, or you've got a car, and instead of selling it, you're getting a new one, instead of selling it, you give it away to somebody with needs in the church, or forgiving someone who's always throwing you under the bus. All of this type of love glorifies the greatness and the power of Jesus. And what James says here that's critical for us 
is when we speak bad about one another, when we make judgment, we're actually undercutting Christ's whole philosophy of family. His whole way of interacting with one another crumbles when we begin to judge one another and speak poorly about one another. When you're bad-mouthing others, you're actually bad-mouthing Christ's whole worldview. So look at that same verse again, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. That's the law of Christ. And judges the law, the way, the love of Christ. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, the love of Christ, but you become a judge, right? You see that? If you find yourself in a place that says, you know what, even though Christ would have me use my words to build up other people, I'm going to go ahead and tear them down. Even though you, if you begin to think like that, you must admit that you're now following yourself more than Christ, right? You've evaluated the law, the way of Jesus, and you've found it wanting. You've decided to discern for yourself what is best, what is good for you, what will satisfy you, what will lead to your happiness. You could call yourself a disciple of Davis, if that's your last name, but not a disciple of Jesus, right? A smithton, but not a Christian, because you're following yourself and not Jesus and the law of yourself. In short, the what James is trying to get into our thick skulls as we make ourselves. You have made yourself a judge over how you live your own life. This week I read in a paper, it's a 10-year anniversary of a movie that I saw 10 years ago, PG-13 movie called Click. You may have seen this movie in the movie, uh, the accountant named Matthew is having troubles in his life. His family's all messed up, his accounting job's all messed up, so he goes into the store and he meets, it's kind of a a fantasy movie, but he goes into the store and he meets Christopher Walken's character, and he gives him a universal remote. With this remote, he can now control time, right? So he can pause time if he's in a fix. If he wants to skip over a fight with his wife, he fast-forwards through that part. If he wants to go back to a good point in his life where he did a, something great in sports, he reverses everything, and uh, he now has this remote where he can do all kinds of things. The movie's not worth your time, but there is a funny scene... He's got high school kids, right? He's got youth. He comes home one day, and turns out his kid's not the athlete he wants him to be. So his kid's throwing baseball with a bully kid. So he walks into the yard, Michael, and he's got the remote control. He says, hey, kids, how's it going? And uh, the bully guy's like, it would be a lot better if your kid could catch. He can't catch you at all, you know. And so Michael's like, hmm. And he waits till his kid picks up the ball, and he throws it to the bully, and then he, he pauses it, right? And Michael walks over to the bully who's about to catch it, and he moves the glove. And then he hits play, and so it's bonk, And he decided he can judge what's right in his life and what's wrong. James is having none of that. James says, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. And it's he, look, it's he who is able to save and to destroy. He's pushing us back to Jesus here. Last week, if you were here, you saw how James always says, our external behaviors are connected to the heart. If you've got problems going on in your external, it's because of a worship orientation that's out of whack. The same thing's going on here. If you're bad-mouthing folk, gossiping, there are internal problems with Jesus. James gets specific. If you find yourself judging people and gossiping about them, you're making a grab with the very throne 
of Christ. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. Now James is going to highlight Jesus' uniqueness here in a couple of ways. He says he's the one who can save. We know that about Jesus. And he's the one who can destroy. Now that might be a little less familiar. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's referring to a time in the future where the Bible says Christ himself is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to judge the entire cosmos in a final, distinct way. Remember, Matthew talked about this. Matthew 25, 31 wrote the words of Christ, who said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's Jesus, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's the throne that we try to usurp, right? He will sit on his throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And it's at this time when God's righteous wrath is going to be revealed, poured out on all of those people who in their daily life has regularly over and over again said no to God, said, I would rather follow myself than follow the leading of Jesus Christ. However, those whom God chose before the foundation of the world to have life in Jesus Christ, and he's delivered from the bondage of sin and the attacks of Satan, those of us who can wear that righteousness will be saved from God's wrath in the end day. Though judged, we will be deemed righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ himself because of his cross work on our behalf. James's big point here is there's only one worthy to make these ultimate judgments. It's not you. It's not you. There's only one, and it's not you. Your condemnation of people with your lips exposes an inner belief that you really think you're the ultimate judge, right? Not Jesus. You're usurping Christ from his judgment seat. And the dark irony, according to James, is that your judgment of others might actually be what Jesus uses, holds your judgment against you when he comes as the true judge. Your phony judgment will be evidenced against you at the final judgment seat of Jesus. That's why James can say in verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not Jesus, right? You're not the ultimate. Who, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, how can we make this work? How can we make it practical? Last week was Father's Day, so I tried to speak a lot to the men, the fathers. I don't want to leave the women out, right? So, Let's have an application for the women here. I chose this because over the past 11 years here as a pastor, I've spoken to several wives, and I've heard a concern that came up, especially younger ones. They'll come to me and say, you know what frustrates me as a wife is when my husband goes off into his little fake world. You know what they mean by fake world? That is the world of video games where you're conquering these places. That is the world of fantasy football where you're paying imaginary stuff all the time. I hear this from wives. It's not my favorite. So, married dudes, it's a tip. Ladies, not a big hit with the ladies when you go into your fantasy fake world, right? But think about this. Think about this. When we make judgments on others, against others, we base them oftentimes on comparison. And these comparisons actually spring from fairy tales. They spring from our own made-up fairy tales. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, let's say you found someone lacking in your world, right? 
and you begin to compare them to yourself. You might say something like, I can't believe she said that about me. I would never say that about her, right? You're making a comparison between what she said and what you would say. Or you might say, I can't, she, she fed her daughter what? I would never let my kids eat that, right? You're making a, a little comparison about what you feed your kids and what they feed their kids. It's a comparison that's involved in judging. But the fairy tale is the imaginary world in which you enter when you're doing this is you're making a make-believe character yourself who would never do anything morally wrong like that, right? We love imagining ourselves as people who are above the game. I would never do that. Never feed my kids that. I would never say that about anybody, right? The problem is the Bible says it's just not true. The Bible says we all have a moral deficit. And chances are, maybe you've never said those exact same words, but you've said something worse to someone. It's easy for you to hate his fantasy football, right? But you love your imaginary integrity, right? We can all be guilty of doing that. Now, there's another, another type of comparison that we make, another type of judgment that we can also make. Sometimes it swings the other way, right? Sometimes you might judge somebody instead of poorly. You might judge them as really impressive, right? You might look at someone, women, and say, that woman is just impressive. Maybe it's something with her body. Maybe she's small where you're big. I don't know. Maybe she has something about her look that you would really have. I'm impressed by that. Maybe it's her kids. Maybe her kids pray better, play better, are more respectful than yours. Maybe her home is more bloggable. I don't know, but something <laughs> has impressed you, right? Something has impressed you about this other lady. But that's another type of judging. You are making a comparison, and it's built on a fairy tale. The fairy tale in this story is that you would be better off if you had her life because, after all, she's worth more than you. Look at all the stuff she has. You would be much better off. That's the fairy tale that you invent and we begin to believe, but it's not true. It's fatal fiction. Both of these type of imaginary worlds need a dose of reality, don't they? If you tend to judge others as worse than you, remember every day that your sister's worth comes not from her performance, but from her being made in the image of God. Right? Any righteousness you have yourself, sister, is given to you its birth by the Holy Spirit, and it's from the righteousness of Jesus himself. But if you tend to judge others as better, more impressive than yourself, more accomplished, remember that only God is qualified to make that judgment, right? Whether it's about the comparison between your bodies or your parenting, only God can really make that comparison. And he bases that off the righteousness of Christ alone and if you're born again, you're wearing that righteousness. That's good news. When he looks at you, he's seeing the suit of Christ, right? The reflection of Christ. He's not making a comparison. He is looking at Jesus when he sees you. That's your hope. God's promise is that he has adopted you, sister. And he says, you are worthy to the entire cosmos. May everyone know you are worthy because he has chosen you. God's promise is he's working to make you more like Jesus, not the other person. That would be a weak promise, right? He's crafting your situation, your life, your home, your body, your parenting. He's working in all of that to create someone more like Jesus. That's our gospel hope.
So we've seen how we can attempt to make grabs at Christ's throne through taking his place as judge. I want to see one more thing here. Let's note another way that we're constantly grabbing at the crown of Jesus. We claim to be independent of God. That's the second way that James says we make a grab for the throne of Christ. We claim to be independent of him. Now you have to understand there's some distance between our culture and the text, right? In the ancient world, if you were the king, that meant that everything depended on you. If you were the king, you had a ton of power. Everything depended on you. Think about the story of Esther that we have in the Old Testament. Remember that great story? Esther was a queen, but she was under the authority of the king who had ultimate power. If he made a law, it was irrevocable. It was absolute. You couldn't turn it back. And what happened is he made a law that not only condemned her whole family, but her whole ethnic race was condemned by his law. So she had to act to save her people. And there's a great scene in chapter 4 when she knows she has to go and plead before the king, but she also knows just to step inside his chamber can get you the death penalty off with your head, right? If the king doesn't want to see you, he calls his guards and you're out of there permanently. So you can almost see Esther standing there boldly, but man, she's shaking. She's inching up. She's hoping to catch the king's eye and you see the king sitting there. You know, he's on his throne. Maybe he's got a turkey leg. I don't know what he's doing, but he's on his throne. He's doing his kingly stuff. And then he notices Esther, and there's a moment where he's like, hmm, I don't know if I approve of her or not. Finally, graciously, he extends his scepter to her, and she speaks. She ends up saving God's people. But what a story illustrating how the king determines the who, the where, the what of his entire kingdom. That's what it means to be king. Now look at the example we're given next in James. He gives a common scenario that you might have, a daily stuff of life type of scenario, going to work, doing your business. But notice in this scenario, the where, the what, the when, all of that is controlled by King you. All controlled by King you in this sinful scenario that James brings to our attention in verse 13. Let's read it together. Verse 13, James says, Come now. You who might say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Well, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So picture a man sitting at breakfast with his wife and they're having a thoughtful conversation about what the day would be, right? And she asks him, you know, what's going on today? Where are you headed? And he says, oh, I'm going to a town but I'm headed to Cary. He's like, oh, you know, who's, who's going with you? Well, maybe my business partner. I'll, I'll take him out there. When are you going to do it? Uh, either today or tomorrow. And what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to make a profit there. Well, how are you going to do it? Well, you know me. I'm going to trade some stuff. That's my business. I'm a trader. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this conversation and make some money. When you look at that conversation, you don't see anything inherently sinful. And it seems innocent enough. And you might ask the question that would be rational, is James telling us not to plan here when he describes this conversation, when someone's simply planning out his day? Well, is it sinful for us to think that we know what's going to happen in the future to make some plans? Well, according to James, no, but yes. And here's what I mean by that. No, in a sense that Scripture is full of planning. We serve a planning God, right? He planned out the election of his people, the salvation, the justification, the glorification of his people before the earth was formed. And he carried it out. The Bible says he orders your steps. 
He determines where you're going to step. He is a planning God. And when you look at the life of Moses or Paul or King David or Jesus himself, you see them making plans to go here and there. So it's not sinful to make plans, but in a way it can be. How can it be? James says this, if there's a hint, even a whiff of self-reliance, when you're making your to-do list, when you're working on your iCal, if you're thinking that you are the glue that holds all of this together, then James would say you're trying to take Christ's place on his royal throne. You're evil. It's dishonorable. It's corrupt. It's reprobate. Why? Because the privilege of the true king is that everything relies on him. That's the sin in our plans. If we begin to imagine that we can determine the outcome of our day apart from God's good rule, apart from his sovereign graces, and we have uh, taken, taken a shot, taken a grab to the throne of Jesus. But we love, we love to think about being kings. We love to give nicknames of kings to people, right? LeBron, he's the king, right? We gave that nickname to him. Elvis, he's the king of rock and roll. Richard Petty, the king of NASCAR, right? If you're a southern boy, yeah, I see that. I see that hand. Oh, Johnny Carson, king of comedy, right? Eminem, some people called him the king of hip-hop, whether you believe it or not. It's what we call people. Jerry Lawler, king of wrestling, right? We love giving nicknames to people. You're the king, you're the king, you're the king. I think that's because we like the idea of ourselves being little kings, knowing what's going on, being able to control, being self-sufficient, self-reliant. Like I said, we were at youth camp this week, and uh, part of my job was on the rec field. Uh, I'm there, and I'm managing part of a relay race. So you break the kids up in a team. They have some unity, fun bonding time, and they each have to complete a relay race where they go and they play a game at one station, and they finish it. They rush over here, game at this station, rush over here, and the winner gets the prize. So I was manning this station, and it was the famous dizzy bat, right? You've done this where you stick a baseball bat on your head, and you stick the other end on the ground, and then you go around ten times. And after the tenth time, you have to accomplish a task while you're dizzy. Right? It was the best event there, because I got to see the kids crash, burn like that. But every time a new group would come up to the dizzy bat, there would always be three or four characters. Remember, it's in a race, right? Well, I have to explain to them how the game works while they're in the middle of the race. And I would be explaining, and there'd always be some cats who'd be like, come on, old timer. You know, I could see it on their face. Like, I know, I know how to do this. Come on, it's a dizzy bat. We've all seen it. Come on, come on. Let us go, let's go. And so I would let them go, and they'd be dizzy. And then what they're supposed to do is go to a bucket of water, scoop a glass, run over to their teen's bucket, and fill it up, run back, hand the glass. Well, man, this one guy, I've watched him all week. Bless his heart. He gets up there, and he scoops it. And he runs to the wrong team's bucket. And he does it. Another guy gets it and he scoops it, dumps it on his own head. He's like, <laughs> they didn't pay attention to me at all because they thought they were self sustaining. They thought they had control of these things. And this is our illusion under which we often operate. John Piper says it this way Pride or self exaltation or self reliance is the one virus that causes all the moral diseases of the world. This has been the case ever since Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be God instead of trust God. That's the heart of James' message here. You want to be God instead of trust God. 
And this will be true until the final outburst of human pride is crushed at the battle of Armageddon. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus will come back as the crusher, stick his heel on your pride, and will glorify himself in the process. There's only one basic moral issue, says Piper. How to overcome the relentless urge of the human heart to assert itself against the authority and the grace of God. That's what James is talking about. Watch back here in our text. For the second time in the text today, James uses a short little question to kind of call you out, to put you in your place. Earlier he said, who are you to judge your neighbor? Right? Short little question. I want you to think about yourself. He does it again here in verse 14. He says, what is your life? Well, you're just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's like a bathroom air freshener I have at my house. You know, you spray it and then you see it and the smell lingers, but the mist is like, mm, it's like a poof and then it's gone. That's what James says. You're just like this poof and you, you're gone compared to God. He's not saying you're not worth anything. Of course, you're worth a lot. You have the image of God. You're God's creation. You're worth a ton. But compared to God, you're not fit to rule. Remember back in, in Job, compare James' description as us, uh, as being missed, to how God describes himself. When he was talking to Job, Job had a problem. Him and his friends were looking at a catastrophe the wrong way. They were, they were thinking wrong thoughts about who God was, about who they were. And so God steps up and he he gives a self-statement about himself in chapter 38. Listen to what God says about himself. To man, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who laid its cornerstone? And have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? No. You don't know when you are going to die, when your children are going to die, when your parents are going to die. The gates of death have not been revealed to you. Declare it to me if you know all of this, says God. God is much bigger. He knows much more. He's much more fit to rule than we are. Well, what's the remedy? Look in verse 15. James uses a principle that sometimes happens in our discipleship. Sometimes your heart is going to follow your actions, and sometimes your actions follow your heart. That's the way discipleships work. And so James says, let's let's change what we say in order to change this ruling urge that we all have. Verse 15, instead of saying, "Ah, I'm going to do this, this, and this on my own power, instead of planning that way, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, you may not think about your planning, your scheduling, You're thinking about the day as boasting, right? Most of us don't. But James says it can be if you're arrogantly saying through the way you're making your plans as you interact with people, if you're saying, I am self-sufficient. The world revolves around me, and James calls that boasting due to your arrogance. Humility says, I'm not the king of my universe. Listen here. As Job replies, it's interesting, after that conversation where God says, this is who I am compared to you, Job has a change of heart. Job uh, repents in chapter 42. And Job, after he gets a glimpse of God, look at how his heart changes. He says, 
God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. This is what he uttered. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Did you catch that? I had heard of you. I had this intellectual working knowledge of you. I'd heard of your reputation, but now my eyes see your glory in my heart and realize just how big and awesome and gracious and glorious you are, God, and I want to follow you. I repent. He's not saying he's worthless. Again, don't misconstrue repentance with worthlessness just because he says, I repent in dust and ashes. He's being sincere in his own problem of trying to take over the throne of Christ himself. And James says we all have this problem. How can we grow in a humility that's going to be able to make plans that exalts Christ ruling in our life instead of undercuts it? How can we grow in this humility? A couple ways. First one, look humility in the knees. Look humility in the knees. What do you mean by that? That's weird. Look humility in the knees. I was watching this week uh, an Olympic coach. Olympics are coming up, and uh, my kids are swimming, and this Olympic coach is teaching people how to dive into the pool. Not the fancy kind of two, you know, two-meter dive. It's the dive that helps you swim, right? You dive in, and you start swimming in a race, Michael Phelps style. He's teaching people how to do it, and I don't know how to do it, so I need to watch this video, right? And, you know, what turns out is very crucial if you're a diver. You know, on the initial dive, you have to keep your head down. You want a certain angle. You want your chin tucked, and you, you want to start just like this. But you don't say all that when you're teaching a kid because they don't have a point of reference. What you teach a kid is look at your knees, right? The idea is you're looking at something that's very familiar to you in order to accomplish something else. With humility, it might do us all well to look towards contentment. In other words, I think most of us are more concerned naturally with our own fulfillment, with our own joy, with our own contentment, rather than attacking our pride. So let's shoot at contentment. Let's look humility in the knees. Let's look for contentment. The way contentment works is you will never find peace. You will never find happiness. You will never have joy until you let go of trying to rule. Right? You'll always be consumed with anxiety as you bend your soul trying to control what is uncontrollable, whether it's traffic or your kid's health or your finances. These things are in some sense out of your control. So you'll never be content unless you say, God, I'm going to try my hardest. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to chase after this. But you are ruling over these things. Then what happens is that peace comes in. And that peace can lead to humility and say, oh, you know what? I can humbly move forward today knowing that God is the one ruling here. Look humility in the knees. What else? Straight from the text. Let's propose a conversation reformation. James says simply, change the way you speak. A conversation reformation. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that after every statement, you say tritely, if the Lord wills, oh, what time are you going to wake up tomorrow? 7.30, if the Lord wills. You know, that's not exactly what he's talking about. But he's talking about flavoring the tone of your conversation should regularly be, you recognize someone is 
ruling over you. It's higher and better than you. I was going to creed camp this week, and uh, Julie said, what time do you think you're going to be home? And I said, I'm going to try to be home on Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. And she was kind of like, rightfully, I will try. What do, you, what do you mean by that? And I, at that moment, I thought to myself, wait a minute. I'm a man. I can be home at 9. I can control this camp in such a way. I can leave, and I can show her, the boss, I can be home at 9. And I can save her anxiety, right? She doesn't have to worry if she knows I'm coming home at 9. It's a way I can protect her and love her, and that makes me feel good. All that temptation came into that one conversation. But what happens if I say just something like, I'm planning on being home at 9, but ultimately, I don't control all the factors of life. Just know that I'm trying my best to be home at 9. That's just a dash of a nod to Christ, a dash of humility that reminds me I'm not the chief here. I'm not the king. I'm not ultimately ruined. And it reminds her, if she's tempted to get anxious about not knowing exactly when I'm coming home, she's got to turn to Jesus, not me, right? Because Jesus is the king. We can flavor our conversation in this way. That's what James is getting at here in this text. Except he goes deeper than what time you get home, right? He said your very livelihood, how you work, how you bring home the bacon, how you do the basic things that you think shelter yourself, even those things you give over to God. We tend to give the salvation of our friends over to God. We know we can't do that, right? But making our money, that's our stuff, right? We tend to believe that. James says, be responsible, go after it hard, but in the end, let your conversation reveal that God is Lord in Jesus Christ. So that's going to be our watchwords this week from the text. James says, look out, you are going to be tempted to overthrow Christ. You're going to be tempted in the way that you judge other people. Just this week, you might get home, you might get online, you might read something on Facebook. You're going to be tempted to judge somebody, maybe even in your own family, somebody's going to say something. You're going to be tempted to tear them down with your words. Watch out, Christ is on the throne, not you. You don't get to decide how much they're worth. Also in your planning, you are going to be a tempted to not even consider Christ when you make your to-do list. Right? You own this. This is me. This is not him. Some of us were even trained to talk like that. Right? I don't know. I, I remember being in football in high school and the coach, I was a receiver. The coach says, go, go crack down on this linebacker. Take him out. And what did I say? Well, I'll try. <laughs> Thinking he's twice my size. I can't control what he's going to do. He's more massive than me. And what does the coach say? No, there ain't no try. You make it happen, right? We're in a culture when all of the language, maybe it's your quota at work, right? Get the quota, meet the quota. Well, I don't know, sir. I'll try to do that. No, military talk. You're going to get this done. Well, I'll try. Our whole culture is set up to make you think you're self-sovereign and you're self-sufficient. James says it's a lie of the devil. We have to fight against it. How do you fight against it? Well, finally, I was reading this week a hymn, and I thought to myself, this is a whole other sermon. I'm not going to preach it now, but the whole other sermon to say the key here is realizing and remembering the worth of Christ. Right? You have to trust that he is worthy to judge others. You don't have to do it because he's going to take care of it. Right? You have to trust that he's worthy to rule over your schedule. Ultimately, he's in charge. You don't have to claim it because... He is ultimately. So 
How do we trust Him? Well, I was reading through this old hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And it reminded me of the greatness of Jesus. And that little reminding helped me to trust Christ just a little bit more this week. Here's the word. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Only one person is worthy to get the angels on their knees. They're only bowing to Jesus, not you. Bring forth your royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Only he is worthy. You chosen seed of Israel's race. You ransomed from the fall. You didn't ransom yourself. Only Christ paid the ransom in his death. Only he was worthy to do this on your behalf. Hail him who saves you by his grace. Crown him Lord of all. Sinners whose love can never forget the wormwood and the gall. Go spread your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, only one person is going to summon all nations, all ethnic groups, all languages to himself. He's worthy to be trusted. To him all majesty ascribe. Crown him, ye martyrs of your God, who from his altar call extol the stem of Jesse's rod. There's only one son of, of David stemming from Jesse's rod who fulfilled all the prophecies in a royal, divine way. It's Jesus, not ourselves. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song. Only one person can give you everlasting life. It's Jesus, and he's worthy to be simply trusted. Once again, this text is not complex, but it, 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 it cuts at your core. It's profoundly deep in its call for you to come to Christ and trust him, even in the words that you speak daily. 